This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is John Shreve. John, are you ready to be great today? I'm ready to be great. John oversees all facets of MCG growth and management. He was chairman of MCG from 2002 to 2009, became a CEO in 2007. From 2002 to 2019, MCG has grown by over 20 times. Prior to MCG joining Hearst in 2012, John has been with Milliman for over 25 years as an equity principal and consultant actuary. In addition to MCG, John led or sponsored 20 other practices, including actuarial practices in Denver, Mexico, and Brazil, and Milliman's risk adjuster. Mara and his medical underwriting guidelines. He's held various leadership positions, including service on Milliman's board of directors and chairman of his health board, health product committee. John, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So, John, first off, recently he was in Orlando for a couple of weeks for a conference called Hymns 22, I think. I, actually, I'm heading to that next week. Oh, it's next week? Yes. Okay, I read it on LinkedIn. So, a couple of weeks. What's, what's that all about? What is that? So, Hymns is a, a very large. Uh, uh, healthcare technology conference. Uh, Pre-pandemic, about 40,000 people would attend. Uh, so it's a, a very large, uh, very large show where mostly we interact with other vendors. Uh, but uh, uh, and this year we're focusing on showing off the new uh, technology solutions that we're that we're delivering. So are you going to the sell stuff, or are people trying to sell stuff to you? To sell stuff. Sell stuff. Uh, sell stuff and work with other vendors. And this is like an annual event pre-COVID? Yes. Yeah. And I'm guessing, it's, is, is it in Orlando all the time? Like change, I'm guessing they change it's, places. It's only in two places. It's in Orlando or Las Vegas. Those are the only two that are uh, have enough hotel space to yeah. accommodate it. That, this makes sense. So next, um, so doing my research, your company does very well with something called Net Promoter Score, which people don't know the name. It's basically, it's like you get a grade for your customer service. And so your scores are very high. I think you have a high score from 94 to 92% of like vendors and you know people want to come back doing you. And you even have a chief customer's office, chief customer office, but a lot of people don't have that. Can you talk about the importance of customer service to you and your company? Yeah, and, and first off, I'd say when you have a high net promoter score, that's going to reflect both that your products are strong and your customer service is strong because uh, you have to get people to give a, a high score to the question, would you recommend MCG? Um, uh, but the customer side has been uh, very important to us in terms of of uh, making sure that our customers know how to use our products, how do we work with them effectively as partners. Uh, you know, we educate them on the clinical side, we uh, we install things on the, on the technology side, so there's just a big group. And I think part of the secret, our chief customer officer, Linda Michelo, uh, just has a very uh, strong sense of how to connect with customers. And uh, her favorite saying is, is assume positive intent. So when you're working with a customer, even if they're a tough customer, assume positive intent. And, and she spreads that throughout her organization, and it's, and it's very effective. So, John, who is your customer? Uh, we have two primary customers. 
one is a health insurance payer, uh, and generally they're the chief medical officer or case manager there. And the other is hospitals. And again, there it's, it's usually uh, the uh, case managers that we work with at the hospitals. So, John, you know, I think a lot of healthcare has this bureaucratic, you know, reputation. It's 2022. The two things are ways of 1982. Well, obviously, your company's doing things pretty much up to date. How is it that you're like not so bureaucratic versus some of your other healthcare people? Yeah. Well, and you can tell that that healthcare is bureaucratic because the main way that people communicate with each other in healthcare is the fax machine. <laughs> uh, and so that's, uh, and to the extent where people have built applications that you can, even though you're doing something in technology, you then send a fax out of that technology and now payers are looking at ways they can can use uh, NLP to read the faxes, but it's still the fax machine. But anyway, so, so you know, our company was founded on the basis of evidence-based medicine. So we have a staff of doctors who goes through all the medical research uh, to uh, to say what is appropriate care in any particular moment. Uh, and we've done this because healthcare has a lot of unwarranted variation. So, so some places they do it one way, some places they do it another. Uh, and health, and part of the reason for the bureaucracy in healthcare is they keep trying to find ways to solve the problem of the unwarranted variation. Uh, and so while we first provided the tools that allow you to see what's the appropriate thing to do, we're now providing the technology to make it easier for that communication between the payer and the provider to occur uh, and for the right decision to be made. So John, is this true? I might be making this up, but you might go to one hospital, x-ray might be $500, go to x-ray at a different city of state might be $200. Is there is that true? Or is, like, is it pricing based on hospital? How's that pricing work? Uh, that's absolutely true and you're estimating low. <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, and we don't get into the pricing side of it as much as what's the what's the appropriate care. Okay, so you you uh, talking a little about evidence based clinical decisions. What exactly is that? So evidence based says there is clinical research, usually published peer reviewed uh, studies that show that something is effective or is not effective, uh, and and our editors, our physicians and nurses, look through all of this uh, published medical literature to find what is the, the most appropriate thing to do. So just as examples, um, uh, a fairly common procedure is a stent for your heart. Um, and what the medical uh, literature says is if you do not have other symptoms or if you have chest pain, a stent is not effective. It does not change your life expectancy. It, it turns out it doesn't even reduce the amount of chest pain that you have. Uh, but yet, that's often a go-to treatment uh, that uh, cardiologists or cardiac surgeons will use to treat things that maybe don't need treating, treating for that. There are places where a stent's appropriate, but, but knowing the places that they are and they aren't appropriate uh, is very important. So, John, what role does like insurance play in this? You know, because insurance, has, you know, they have that reputation. They lowball you; don't want to pay for anything. Like, how much if it's between like the, the medical doctor and insurance? Like, who really? This is a bad word to say. Who usually wins out? I guess you know, like who. Um, so, so we've actually carved out a very important niche in that conversation. Uh, so, uh, 
the uh, most most uh, health insurance contracts are written to say we'll pay for things that are medically necessary, and then the argument becomes: is that or is that not medically necessary? Um, and the role that our that our guidelines have created is one in which the uh, that we've created a common language for the payers and the providers to use, so they can talk about when things are appropriate or not. And so, my view, by the way, is is insurance companies, uh, you know, can act fairly badly and try not to pay for things, and healthcare providers can try and provide things that aren't necessary. And so, and so, you, how do you get a middle ground between those two? You know, and I would I would say, by the way, knowing both people on both sides, most people there are very very good, and they, you know, and there are some bad actors on both sides, and you have to watch out for that. Mostly, they're trying to find a way to collaborate on delivering the best care for the patients, uh, and the trust level between them is is not as high as it should be, and so it uh, uh, that creates a lot of the problems too. So, John, you've been involved in the medical industry like over twenty years, right? Maybe more than that. That's right, all my life, all your life. So, from your point of view, what are some things that have gotten better, and some that have gotten worse in the past? Year, in the in the past. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Uh, so I would say the amount of unnecessary care has come down uh, um, over, well, so I'm 60 now. When I was right out of school, um, uh, Milliman, and I didn't work for Milliman yet, produced uh, cost guidelines that said the average number of days per thousand, meaning out of a thousand people, how many days would you spend in the hospital for a commercial population was about 600. Um, now it's about 150. So, so the amount of extra care that wasn't necessary has come down significantly. Um, I would say from an insurance point of view, what's gotten better is they know better how to provide appropriate customer service. So my current insurer, uh, you know, just sent something to us that says, oh, here's how you can you know, freely access telemedicine under your benefit, or here's how, you know, so they, they, they've taken advantage of technology to make the customer experience better as well. So, so I think uh, while there's been a lot of pain over the years, there's also been some significant, improve, significant improvements in the care that's being delivered to individuals. So John, um, how, how do y'all break down demographics? Or oh, does that matter at all? Like, do you break down like income matters, like ethics, um, ethnicities, race, like cities, like rural, urban, people make $100,000? Does any of that play anything with it? Or is there different things done? Um, I'm not, so it doesn't play a factor in what are you asking? In the studies, in the studies y'all do? Oh, so the, the studies are based on humans. Okay. Uh, and, uh, uh, there's actually some interesting further uh, further pieces on that. So, number one, locality does matter in terms of the treatment that's actually provided. So, as you look around the country, um, our our medical editors, uh, you know, we have our our managing editor on the inpatient side talks about the doctors in New York, and he's a New Yorker, and how much extra things they do that are just not appropriate. Um, uh, on the other side, uh, maybe one of the better places to get care is in California, where things have really been been uh, sorted out more. So there's a lot of regional variation in how care is provided. We, our guidelines, do not say 
you should get different care depending on where you're at, but it, it, it's there as well. The other thing that we've just recognized in our guidelines and in the evidence, and it's sort of, it's embedded in the evidence that there are some racial things that are inappropriate. So we've just uh, uh, identified one, it's called a calculator, so it's to determine sort of how severe your illness is, uh, that used race because it assumed that the body mass of African-Americans was higher, which is a bad assumption. There is nothing that says that's actually true. And so so we pulled that out of our guidelines, even though that was medically accepted uh, assumptions. And on the other hand, there was something else that, that there was another calculator in which uh, uh, Asians, Asian-Americans or Asians were not given a different treatment where there actually is evidence that their body type is different. And so and so what we're trying to do is is reflect the evidence but not sort of built-in assumptions in society uh, that that might tell you that uh, you should treat people in you know it's sort of when does it tell you you should treat people differently by race inappropriately and when should it tell you to treat people differently by race appropriately. So it's a uh, uh, there and there and having said that, most of the guidelines have uh, you know have no mention of race in them because it really doesn't uh, uh, doesn't affect most um, treatment decisions. So these guidelines that you do, like who approves them? Like somebody in your company does? Does someone from the government oversee them? How does that work? Uh, we have a, a heavy review process to create the guidelines. Um, so, so we'll take the evidence, uh, an editor review it. We have then a managing editor who reviews what the editor wrote. And, uh, this actually goes back to a peer review process we had at Milliman before we joined Hearst. And then when that's all done, we'll send the guideline to a subspecialist in that field, uh, to make sure again that that our guidelines, which are written more by generalists, still reflect everything that's going on in that subspecialty. So we have multiple levels of review to uh, make sure that the uh, uh, the guidelines are appropriate. But having said that, we remain independent and we don't have uh, any entity that approves or disapproves what we're saying. We, we feel we're the, the uh, sort of right down the center uh, 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 guideline about about any particular topic. So, John, the, the clinical editors is it safe to presume they're like not, no, not like high school uh, graduates. They like, they pretty much like you know pretty well educated and a lot of a lot of training and background to do that job. Yes. So, so they're either uh, licensed doctors or nurses. Uh, the doctors generally have uh, not only you know done all the medical training, but have had further experience in in uh, literature review and understanding what's in that. The, the editors are actually a very interesting breed. They, they just love to uh, sit at home and read articles and figure out the conclusions for, from them. And, um, and, they're pretty, and then they hire more and they're pretty picky about who is allowed in to, to be able to do it. So yeah, it, the, the, the editors are some of the smartest people you'd meet. So is this their full-time job or are they also doctors and do this like on the side? They're, this is their full-time job. We okay. have a couple who who continue to practice on a Saturday just to keep their hands on it. We have one here in Seattle. We have uh, one a surgeon, and she's uh, 
she practices still on Saturday and writes the guidelines the, the rest of the week. So by doing this, does this help advance her career some kind of way or just do this because basically they love doing it? It's the, the, Often this is what they do after they've done uh, the other things. Uh, so it's, uh, um, yeah, so it's they're doing it because they love doing it. Okay. So next, let's talk about um, the tech piece of healthcare. Um, I believe your company's like having to leverage AI, all the tech pieces. Can you talk about how the tech's playing in healthcare? And it's like, is healthcare like up to date with tech, behind tech, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, clearly, you know, healthcare is a very big field, so you, different pockets of it have different degrees of sophistication. Um, in the space where we're talking about uh, the uh, clinical decision support uh, and and the approval in in for prior authorization or concurrent authorization, uh, the history is one where, um, you know, until until fairly recently, we would refer to it as phone and fax hell, uh, in which the providers would would call in to try and get something approved, and you can just imagine how that might go, or they'd send a fax in to get the uh, get the same thing. We introduced a. A solution, probably six years ago now, maybe more, uh, called auto authorization, in which you could go through a portal to to talk about the patient that you're treating and asking for uh, approval for something. Um, and I'd say that quickly turned into phone, fax, and portal hell. Um, so that now you can go on a portal, but for a provider, you have to go to every payer's different. Uh, a portal and and uh, enter this information in different formats every time. So so that didn't work out uh, great. Um, now we have something um, sort of two paths right now. One piece called collaborative care, the other called Da Vinci. Um, uh, in collaborative care, if you're in a hospital uh, and you're already documenting the MCG guidelines, uh, collaborative care allows you to push a button and that episode shows up in the payers. Uh, software where they can either automatically or with human intervention uh, review and approve or not that that particular request. Um, uh, that you know, and right now we have Cleveland Clinic using that solution, sending it to a payer in Ohio, uh, CareSource, uh, and it's early on in in the process. DaVinci, or do you want to? Um, DaVinci is the sort of overall industry standard where it says out of the electronic medical record of which there are a handful that people use you can send a request uh, and the payer needs to respond with here's the information I need maybe here's my standard send it back uh, and uh, and then that approval process works um, this is fairly new standards within the industry what MCG is adding to that standard that's not contemplated by it is something that actually looks inside the electronic medical record and using our guidelines reads the record and says, oh, I can see where that meets the guideline or I don't see where it meets the guideline and it needs further review to, to figure it out. Um, and when you use that technology, which we call Synapse, uh, uh, hospitals who've started to use it on their own have reduced the review time of a case manager from 15 minutes to under a minute uh, to say this is appropriate or not appropriate care. Uh, so so what we're doing, right, the technology today is really uh, making this whole process much, much more efficient. And uh, we're at the start of a curve 
to really roll this out uh, across the country. So what happens if like someone doesn't follow your guidelines and like, then how do you find out if they don't follow guidelines as a way to do that? So if someone does not follow the guidelines, uh, then the payer will say, say that's not medically appropriate and they won't approve it. Now, in some cases that means, uh, you know, from a patient point of view, that'll be seen as big bad insurance company denied my care. From an insurance company point of view, it'll say, the viewpoint is, is here's a physician uh, who's trying to prescribe the wrong thing given the uh, situation. Uh, and so we're not, so the way we can stop that from happening is saying that we won't pay for it. Uh, so if you're a patient and your care gets denied, um, your real question should be, be, was I being recommended something that wasn't necessarily appropriate? Um, and uh, uh, the uh, tougher situation comes like if you come in through the emergency department uh, and the hospital starts treating you inappropriately, um, that can lead to financial problems because the payer is trying to get the insurance, I mean, uh, to get the hospital uh, to follow the guidelines. Um, and sometimes the patient can get stuck in the middle of that. So this might be off the subject, but would it be better if healthcare was nonprofit instead of for-profit? It's interesting when you look at, you know, like a nationalized system like a UK or Canada uh, and how that varies from where we are. So I would say, say the problem that we have is, uh, is that the profit motive causes uh, causes the uh, uh, providers to try and do too much. Um, and uh, 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 the problem you have on the other side is the constrained budgets cause the providers to not do enough. Um, and so so I'm not sure which one's better or worse. So we have uh, a person who's on the staff right now whose father in Canada is going through things and they're being really frustrated by not being having good access to the care that they're looking for. Um, you know, so then when you get inside of like a hospital or an insurance company that's for profit or not for profit, on the insurer side, I've been inside of both and I don't really see difference in behavior. So you still have good people on both on on both sides of it. Um, and uh, uh, you know, does the profit you know, the profit margins of both those organizations are very low even when you are for profit. Um, and and same thing on the hospital side. I'm not sure I see a huge difference. I think people who are at one or the other would, you know, defend very strongly. Yeah. The the uh, uh, those pieces of it, but uh, um, you know, in the end, everybody, you know, again, most everybody is working to say what's the best thing for the patient, and and there's a lot of um, work that happens because of that. Yeah, I was on for 25 years because now I'm not on TRICARE, you know, the VA stuff. Yes. And I tell people, you know, like, you know, socialized medicine, this is all like it's character to be sometimes, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and in, in uh, TRICARE, and when I was a consultant, I did a lot of TRICARE work. Uh, so, so the military treatment facilities are kind of the socialized medicine in that they have a fixed budget. Uh, and so they can do a very nice job sometimes. And at other times, they don't have the capacity and the reason they created TRICARE is so that you have a place to go other than VA or military treatment facility uh, if they don't really have the ability. So they have a safety outlet uh, for for that care. 
Yeah, I know with JBLM, like you don't even see a doctor at JBLM anymore. So it's also some kind of nurse practitioner. If you see an actual doctor like this, something usually they're probably seriously wrong with yeah, you. Yeah, watch out. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and by the way, that's happening throughout medicine is that yeah. nurse practitioners who can do a lot of things very well um, are taking care of a lot of the a lot of things they can do quite well. So the nurse protects, are they like getting extra pay for this stuff doing the doctor's job or like they just have to step and do more or? A, a nurse practitioner in some ways is a step between a nurse and a doctor who usually gets paid more than a nurse, but not as much as a doctor. <laughs> so, yes. So do doctors have like a net promoter score or customer service thing they get, you know, like a, maybe a doctor's for Yelp or like something like that? Or how do, do doctors get graded on that? Or they just want to do their job and if they have bad customer service, it's just, they just have bad the, customer the, service. The whole question of quality rankings for um, providers is an interesting question. So, so if you have, um, there's a particular score that I'm, Prescani. Prescani is an organization that will give providers scores. Um, and if you have a high Prescani score, it might mean that you have a very palatious waiting room as opposed to, to that the care that you received uh, is the, you know, aligns best with what's medically necessary. That's very hard to measure uh, from outside looking in. So, yeah, you can get a review, but maybe uh, the uh, individuals receiving it, um, you know, don't aren't as strong of a judge. And I'd say, you know, patients are very good judges of are their doctors listening? Are they hearing what's going on there? And at the same time, do they know um, that the you know do, do they know that the care that it's sort of like going to a auto mechanic if you don't know how to repair a car? Oh, I need to do this for you. How do you know? Uh, and it's very hard to judge. So back when, back when I was growing up, you know, we had a family doctor. I don't think there's much of a family doctor anymore. Do you think we're ever get back to the time where there's a family doctors again? Uh, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> probably we you know uh, the the move right now is is folks like uh, Walmart and CVS are creating clinics that are inside their stores uh, that do that probably will promote some fairly standardized good care. Um, uh, and maybe you build a relationship with those folks, maybe not. There are also, uh, on the Medicare side, uh, there are organizations who are doing a very nice job of treating the whole patient. So there's uh, Iora, there's Oak Street, and what they're doing is, is uh, uh, you know, helping the patients understand all the inputs to health, diet and exercise and stress, uh, and the clinics actually lead them through how to, how to figure that out. Um, and their results are that they have fewer uh, medical problems in terms of, um, uh, fewer hospital admissions or emergency admissions or things along those lines. So, so sort of treating the whole patient really works. And they're not a family doctor, but they're you know th th there's a good strong relationship that you can build there. So, John, I mean, besides obviously malpractice, when should a, someone like try to? Get, I, I want to say get rid of the doctor, but like change doctors. That's a. I haven't thought about that question. I think it's um, probably the most important thing is. Is do you feel listened to by your by your doctor? Uh, do you think they're uh, yeah paying attention to 
to your needs and 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 what happens there. Um, yeah, malpractice or uh, you know if they're recommending a lot of interventions, that might be a good time to to double check because because quite often the best intervention is the more conservative one as opposed to to uh, taking you through a lot of things. In fact, I'll give you a, uh, a favorite example of that one that uh, um, uh, one of our editors before uh, 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 was talking about. So he said, if you have lower back pain, he says the following four interventions all have the same outcomes. Bed rest, physical therapy visits, chiropractic visits, or surgery. So. So from a patient's point of view, which one would you choose? And most likely it's not going to be D, right? It's going to be A, B, or C. Exactly, exactly. So, John, looking at your crystal ball, what do you see as the future of healthcare moving forward? So the place that we're trying to get to in healthcare, and I think we'll get there, but it's going very slowly. It's, it started all the way back in the 90s where we started talking about it. It's something called value-based care. Um, and value-based care is something where the providers are not paid based upon doing more services, uh, but rather paid per person and potentially with a higher payment for people who have good outcomes. So, so they're not getting paid to do more things, they're getting paid to do the right things. Uh, and that means that, in effect, the healthcare providers end up taking the role of the insurance company, or at least 90% of the role of the insurance company sometimes they still have to be insured again, so I get a patient and gets a transplant. Um, uh, but but they get most of the way there and taking the risk, and then they, uh, you know, where the payer and provider are fighting right now, um, it's all internalized into one system. And Kaiser's not a bad a bad example of that kind of system where they, you know, they take the risk and they provide the care, uh, and and I think that's the place that we need to end up and and we're heading in that direction and the government is pushing in that direction and 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 other folks are as well uh and then our guidance becomes uh, you know inside your value-based care organization what's the right thing to be doing uh but not how should you fight about it so are, are medical rules like the same across the world or do we have our own set of rules uk has a set of rules brazil has a set of rules or is that some kind of like worldwide organization that oversees like all the medical stuff so to speak there there is there is not worldwide coordination of what's the most appropriate care um, and there is a fair amount of variation our own our guidelines are used somewhat in Latin America um, where uh, uh, to help guide care uh, but in uh, like the UK they have something called nice guidelines um, Nice stands for, for something, but uh, um, uh, uh, but they tend to be, I'd say, much narrower. Don't cover as many cases as what we what we would cover, but it does guide the uh, National Health S Service in terms of of uh, what's appropriate or not. So it it there unfortunately is not a a good worldwide standard other than all the published evidence that people could. Uh, you know, review and you know, uh, come to a conclusion about. And then, so like, suppose a doctor's trained in the United States, another one's trained in Brazil, another one's trained, like, say, Ecuador, another one's trained in Saudi Arabia. Is all the training pretty much the same, or if, like, there's different levels to it? Like, if you're a doctor in Saudi Arabia, can you come to the States automatically be a doctor and vice versa? Uh, 
Um, so I think, and I'm not an expert here, but the training is pretty similar. Um, I don't know that the licensing requirements are similar, so I don't know if you can just show up and, and, and do the care. The interesting part about medical school is that they teach you what the current evidence says and what's the right thing to do uh, based upon what we know now. There was a famous speech a, uh, um, a doctor gave, I think it was at Harvard Medical School of Graduation, uh, where he said, he says, um, 20 years from now, half of what we've taught you will be wrong. Unfortunately, we don't know which half yet. Uh, and so, so the problem becomes more with the dating of knowledge than it is with the knowledge that people start with. I'm guessing when you're in medical school, they teach you how to be a doctor, but for those who want to go along with medical practice, they don't teach anything about business, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I've certainly heard doctors talk about, uh, you know, I was not ready for the, the business side of things. So next, talk about something futuristic. So I started watching a show on, on Nat Geo called uh, uh, Your Million, and they make all these wild predictions for the future, like you know, a long time ago. One of the predictions is that in the future, we're going to implant little robots in ourselves, and the robots are going to fix everything inside us, like cure, cure cancer, cure HIV, you know, fix viruses. Any chance that's going to come anytime soon? Is that like really our way out in the future? Like that's like craziness. I I don't know. <laughs> it's a you know things are happening. My my favorite innovation right now is, uh, and you, it's now being advertised on TV, but we we had guidelines for it about four or five years ago, is instead of a colonoscopy, you can do a stool sample, which tests the genetic material in your stool to see if there's any uh, cancer DNA um, uh, in that, and it's much less invasive uh, and and within like three points of, of effective of finding cancers to something that's a miserable procedure of a colonoscopy. So the, uh, you know, we're moving forward uh, to the point of robots. I, I, uh, I don't know if we get there or not, or we probably do at some point, but uh, it never moves as fast as you expect no, it to. No, yeah. I, I know you're talking about that. Yeah, I see, it seems like I see that commercial for that colon guard like every day. Seems yeah, like colon guard, that's it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So is there any, like, of course, you know, you know America, we're talking about, like, you know, obesity, you know, health, you know, like heart attacks, you know, stuff like that, cancer. Is there anything medical out there that's, like, really dangerous to, to like, anyone in particular that we're not really paying attention to? We have a lot of bad habits that uh, that create problems. And, you know, the one thing I've learned is, uh, you know, looking at examples, of, you know, so I'm, as a, I'm an actuary by background, so I'm, so I haven't seen all the medical and practice, medicine and practice, but as you get to the older ages, the large number of things that can go wrong. So, you know, the doctors will say, when I have a Medicare patient, there's not one thing wrong, there's six things wrong, and figuring out what's there. Um, I personally think functional medicine, which is closer to what I was talking about for those Medicare groups that, that practice, of really understanding how diet affects you, how exercise affects you, et cetera, uh, probably has a bigger impact than actual medical, and not just probably, has a bigger impact than medical interventions do. Uh, and so in the end, it's taking care of yourself that matters more than what the healthcare system does. John, let's switch now to your role as a CEO. Can can you go like in a like in a, like a and of course there's no things a regular day for you as a CEO, but what, like what do you do usually do day to day as a CEO? So I have a philosophy as a CEO 
that the fewer decisions I make, the better. Um, that is to say, if I make a decision, then uh, people will start assuming I want to make every decision of that type and they'll stop doing things. And so I'd rather that they make those decisions uh, and, and they don't come to me to say, is that okay, is that okay, is that okay? Um, so as a result, my days tend to be more, you know, working with my direct reports, uh, spending time sort of looking at strategy with people, but other people are sort of building that up and we're, we're working through it. Um, at one level, making the executive team make decisions uh, is, is more of my role than making decisions. Uh, so, so I'm a strong believer that culture, um, it's actually a Peter Drucker quote, culture each strategy for lunch. Um, and we very much live by that. And so, so we're always looking at how we make the environment for people to work and succeed as, as strong as possible. And that leads to the high NPS that we have. It leads to very high employee engagement rates as well. So that, um, you know, if the employees are very happy, then our customers are going to be very happy. Do you have a board of directors? We do not. You're so, not. so you're a private company. So, so we were part of Milliman, the actuarial consulting firm. In 2012, we carved out of Milliman and became part of Hearst Corporation. Um, Hearst Corporation is is uh, actually in a trust fund. So Hearst is the newspaper publisher, etc. And when William Randolph Hearst died in the 50s, he put it all in a trust fund. Um, uh, and so... That's a hell of a trust fund. Uh, oh, it is. It is. And it, and it continues um, probably for about 20 more years until his last descendant who was alive on the day he died also dies. That's the ending of the, of the, uh, um, of the trust fund. So I report to the president of Hearst Health. We have five sister companies, and he reports to the president of Hearst. Uh, Hearst has a board of directors, uh, but I have just those two individuals that I'm accountable to. Um, and we did have a board when we were part of Milliman, sort of internal that of the of the partners who who owned a piece of the Milliman Care Guidelines, our former name. Uh, and let me tell you, having having this structure that I have right now is way easier than having a board. So, John, how do you keep up to date with everything? You know, things change all the time. You know, things get updated. You get to do learnings. How do you keep up to date and make sure you're, you know, keep up with all that stuff that you need to be to be an effective CEO? Yeah, yeah. It's at one level, I I rely a lot on, you know, my uh, the, the uh, people who work in the company who have specialized knowledge in various areas. Um, but I'd say I can't rely on them too much because their tendency is going to be toward making the current business better as opposed to advancing to the next business. Uh, and so if I do have a job, it's pushing people beyond the current the current answers and into the future ones. Um, I might not be as good as I should on keeping up on all the technology that's out there, all the healthcare that's out there, all the management practices that are out there. Um, you know, so... I work at that, but I'm but uh, um, it's a mix between relying on others and and
but I do I do a lot of reading, I guess I'd say. So, John, you know, neither one of us spring chickens anymore, right? We're not, you know, we're, our 20s are way behind us. Mm-hmm. So why do you, why keep doing this, right? I mean, you say you have to focus a fire. It seems like you don't want to give value, contribute to society. Why, why doing that choice versus, you know, going home, retiring, and you know, being in the rocking chair? Yeah. It'd be boring. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm in a position where I could retire if I wished. Um, and uh, uh, when I think about that and what I would do, um, it's like, no, this this is much more interesting to me. You know, and I started with this, you know, being involved with the company back in 2002, 2001. Uh, and we've been growing it and we keep growing it. Um, and so it's fun. So, so uh, my short answer is I'm going to keep doing this as long as it's fun. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'm physically able, I guess, but, uh, um, but yeah. Yeah. I think they're saying out there that I'm going to work until I'm 10 toes up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's me or not, but I'm, I certainly haven't, uh, uh, gotten close to thinking, oh, I'll give this up. So, John, for your direct reports of people that are around you, like how do you mentor them or how do you make sure you professionally develop them so they can grow in their careers? You, you have to do everybody differently. So you have to understand what their motivations are um, and how you can support them, um, which means asking them what they're thinking about, you know, and we have, uh, um, uh, you know, What's, there, there's a rule that an HR person gave me that said, in development, um, uh, 70% is sort of on the job, 20% is is coaching, and 10% is education. Um, and and so, sort of on the ongoing ongoing decisions that people are making, it's more spending time with them, helping them figure out their current decisions, but it's also providing those uh, the 20 and the 10 and figuring out what's there. And we have some people who are like, uh, they're pretty content where they are and they don't want to, to go further. And there are others who clearly want to go further. And and uh, then it's helping them see blind spots and helping them uh, um, figure out where to go from there. So it's, uh, um, it's very individualized, maybe is the very short answer. So John, let's say you bring someone on, right? Are you, are you able to tell with the same number of months or days, like they're going to work out, not going to work out? Do you have a method for that? At at uh, the executive level, it never emerges that quickly. Um, so it, it can take um, take a period of time to really uh, see if, the, if it fits or not. And it's very important to the company that I don't keep somebody there, especially who doesn't fit into the culture, but also... Um, who's who's not uh, not producing? But it can be it can take years to figure that out as well. So um, and you and when you finally make the decision, someone's not the right fit. It's always you should have done it much earlier. But uh, um, I think that, that's probably true of everyone. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, but uh, but no, and 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 you know, early on, if there are gaps, I, I coach to them because most people at an executive level are ready to adjust what they're doing to get there. Um, and some are, but so you learn that over time too. So John, how do you do a schedule? Are you working like 10,000 hours a week? Are you working like 20 hours a week? You work, you know, like how, how do you work through that? Like how do you make sure, balance that with of course not, you know, burning yourself out? Yeah, yeah. So I probably average about 50 hours a week. Um, 
uh, one of the things that I do that's contrary to most people is instead of creating clear lines between uh, work and, and home, um, I blur them. So I'm okay if, um, you know, on a weekend I'm working on something uh, that that I want to, you know, and usually it's because it's interesting I get something done there. And I'm okay if during the week I, I take a break and uh, uh, my my biggest hobby, by the way, is Scrabble. So if I if something on Scrabble is coming up, I'll I'll deal with it in the middle of the day. Uh, so so just sort of let it blur. Uh, but I'm still, um, uh, you know, like I said, pro- I I estimate around fifty hours. So John, how do you make sure you take care of yourself? How do you make sure you know John's taken care of your wellness taken care of? Um. So from a so from a diet point of view, I'm a. a a while ago, maybe 20 years ago now, doctors said, oh, you're pre-diabetic. Um, you know, have to watch that. Uh, and with time, I've gradually, I started keeping a, a food diary, and this is the actuary coming out, and and every day would, you know, take my weight and my blood sugar, my fasting blood sugar the next morning. Um, and then uh, and then I started building a, a, a least squares fit model to say, say uh, what foods are, are working and not working for me. And so I've sort of learned for, for me personally, what are the things that I can eat and don't eat that, that fit with, with that. And, and now my blood sugars are, are low enough that I'm, I'm not considered pre-diabetic because I've, I've uh, managed it there. Um, I'm not quite as good at exercise, but I try and um, uh, keep, you know, keep some level of focus on that. Um, and for stress, that's a big deal for a lot of people. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have a disposition that doesn't get stressed out that easily, so I, so I don't worry about that as much, just because it's a, um, it's it's not as big a deal. So, what's the food that you know you shouldn't be eating, but you just love to eat? Bread. Bread. Yeah. Your food. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and, I'll, and I'll and I'll do that. I yeah. So, in my day to day, we just don't have bread around the house, but. If it's offered to me at a restaurant or something, it's pretty hard for me to resist. And your company is across, you have employees and people across the nation? Yes. Yeah. So we have 400 employees total about, uh, and about half, maybe a little less now, are located in Seattle, and the rest are spread out throughout the country. So obviously you can hire new people yourself, right? Someone else is just doing it for you, or doing it for the company. How do you make sure your culture and values and vision stay the same with new people coming on? When you can't like you know talk to them one on one. Yeah, it's and and we've done pretty well with that prior to the pandemic. It's been tougher during the pandemic uh, because um, you know part of the way, and we call it pouring the glue back in, uh, is is you know pulling people together into are all staff meetings having departments that have retreats having you know so having times where people are together in addition to just sort of the the ongoing work that we have uh you know with them and 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 uh figuring that out so we've really missed the uh in-person pieces during pandemic we uh actually did a kick off we had brand new office space uh last month and we kicked it off and we got 90 people into the office it was great to actually get people together um so it's uh um yeah but it's it's uh you have to have executives 
and to the extent you can, leaders who are aligned with the culture as well for it to spread throughout the organization. If you, if your uh, um, leaders are not aligned, and we went through a time period like this about ten years ago, uh, everything falls apart. So, so I learned from there that the um, the alignment of your executives is critical to keeping your culture going. And pre-COVID, was it everyone came to office pre-COVID? Um, here in Seattle, yes. Okay. And then the half the people that we have small offices in San Diego, Denver, and Austin, but for everybody else who who works remotely, uh, they uh, you know they were working remotely before COVID as well. Uh, people in Seattle were coming in all the time. So can you talk about some of the challenges of like, you know, you have remote workers, you have hybrid workers and people come to office. Like, I mean, I don't think your manager's all the same, right? So how do you work through no. them differently? And, you know, like, oh, like, like, you know, somebody be me, a remote worker, they might not get promoted because they've never come in. No one knows the leadership style, decision-making process. When someone coming in, you get to see them every day, right? Right, right. So how do you work through those things? So, and, and again, it's kind of pre and post COVID, two different answers, but uh, um, pre COVID, you know, departments that were remote were largely remote the whole department. So you, so it wasn't like, oh, this person's coming in, so they have an advantage or, or you know, something along those lines. We had all of our account managers working remotely, all of our clinical editors working remotely, um, and they would come together at the same times. Uh, uh, in, in a hybrid workforce, which we were heading to now, uh, you know, most of our software developers are here in Seattle. Uh, and some of them are already coming in daily into our new office, and others have yet to come in. Um, and and I think we're still learning how to balance that. And our rule of thumb right now is is there's no requirement to come into the office on any set schedule. However, if your team is working on something, and you need to get together, that's when you need to come into the office. So, so you know, come in when it's valuable uh, and not just for the sake of coming in. Uh, and, and we're starting to do that, and, and people are still sort of figuring out what that means. And, and I just talked to a manager today who said, oh, I have two people who are really nervous about coming in. They have yet to come in. You know, what do I do on that? And and for the short term, we'll let that happen. And for the intermediate term, it'll be like, encourage them back and, and get them in for those meetings and, you know, so, so that they can connect. But, you know, people totally reacted differently to COVID in terms of how they felt, felt about safety. Yeah. So, John, let's say there's a like, COO out there, CFO out there. Basically, someone's out there at the executive level. They want to become a CEO. What mm-hmm. advice do you have to them to prepare to be a CEO? Put themselves in position to compete for a CEO position. At a major corporation. In the end, I think this is true of actually most positions. Is the best way to get to the next position is start acting like you're already there. Um, now that doesn't mean mean you know take you know surreptitiously start doing things on behalf of them, um, but it means it means you know uh, you know the CEO's job. Uh, is the you know the guardian of the company it has to make sure things are are the decisions are always being made best for the sake of the company, and someone who's close to that um, needs to be thinking about 
you know, it's almost don't do politics, do what's best for the company. Because if you do politics, maybe you get, you know, and, and I've never been a believer here, but maybe you get to a place where you could maneuver yourself into that role. Um, much more likely, people are going to say, oh, that person's the natural pick to be in this role uh, based upon their current behavior. Um, and certainly when I think about the people I would choose as my successors, that's what's true about them. They're, they're the ones who are looking out, you know, they're, they're my confidence that, that uh, uh, you know, when I, you know, trying to figure out what's best for the company, they're the, they're the ones who I go to, to to be a sounding board and so forth. So it's, uh, um, you know, act, act in the fashion that a CEO should act and, and you're much more likely to be considered for that than if you, uh, uh, you know, do more, I don't know, political things. So, John, know they tell people all the time, no, network all the time. If you have a job, network. Don't have a job, network. Put yourself out there. As a CEO, do you network? And if you do, what's your networking strategy? I, I probably don't network as well, much as I should. Um, so, I do some social media stuff that, uh, that you know, regular postings on LinkedIn and so forth and and build it up, build up the network more with our customers than anything mm-hmm. um, and uh, and connect there. The place I should probably network more is with, with you know, vendors that are in our space, but not exactly in our space, you know, so sort of the uh, frenemies. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, because over the long term, I think there could be more connections that build up there. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm an introvert by nature, so maybe I don't do it as well as some. But uh, yeah, I'm, uh, an, I'm an introvert too. Yeah, so it's uh, but but I think it's still there's still good ways. And actually, Hims is a place where we have a number of of partners whose software we integrate with, um, and Hims becomes a great chance to meet all of the partners because they're exhibiting there as well. Yeah, so you, you might laugh at this, right? So I'm an introvert, right? So even though I do this podcast, like you like you were like a minute late, whatever it is, I always hope, the little part of me always hopes the person doesn't come right to do the podcast. Yeah, no, I believe that. So it's, it's always like, well, maybe I don't have to do this. But, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So back to docs for a minute. Of course, you know, doctors, they get out of medical school over like all that money, student loans, whatever. And they're like 500, of course, I'm making like $500,000 of debt, you know, and then how do we, is there a way to fix that? I mean, like, it's not like there's such an undue burden on them, right? So, um, first answer is I don't know any good way to fix it. Um, but I'll also say that I feel like education and healthcare have a lot in common. So there are public goods um, that, that there's a lot of other people's money involved in. Uh, and so when other people's money are involved in paying for something, prices tend to rise. And when prices rise, the people who receive the money, the doctors, the professors, etc., start believing uh, that that's their intrinsic worth. Um, and so uh, and, and so the, it becomes very hard, to change that trajectory of spending more and more money in those areas, you know. So when I went to college, even at a you know a strong college, the annual fee was seventy five hundred dollars, um, and uh, that same college now is sixty thousand, um, and uh, 
uh, and you know, I taught so because I contribute to them, they they talk to me about what's going on, um, but they clearly can't see how they could could run it at a at a lower rate. Their their best answer is, well, we'll give more financial aid to middle class kids. Uh, because we were taking care of the low, lower class kids and the upper class kids were paying themselves and it's the middle ones who are getting squeezed out by our high prices. So we'll give more financial aid to them, but not our cost structure is too high. Um, and I think, uh, and I'm not an expert in education at all, but I see such parallels with healthcare. I think that, that both places have such high cost structures that they create their own problems. You know, so it's, so you can see the similarities. Oh, I'm five hundred thousand dollars in debt because I graduated medical school, um, or other other advanced education, uh, or I went bankrupt because I had a medical procedure. Um, it, you know, both of them are are they expect this level of money, and it places undue financial burden on on individuals who weren't expecting that this would happen to them, and so it's a. Um, uh, at the core, we have to think about how we can do things more efficiently and maybe reduce expectations on on you know what people should be paid, which is very very hard to do. So I'm not like <laughs> like I know how to how to get to that point, but that's a uh, um, yeah. I think that it's it's all very structural that and very hard to undo. So, John, in your background, you were, you were I think you say, actu- actuary? Actuary, yeah. Can you talk about that some? What is that? So, uh, an actuary is the odds maker behind an insurance company. Uh, so, it's a heavy-duty math background um, that uh, um, very difficult field to get into. Uh, uh, and uh, um, it's often, I don't know if it still is, but, but years ago, in the jobs rated almanac would always be like the number one or number two job um, uh, in terms of how much people enjoyed being an actuary. And when was the last time you actually did that? Uh, right before we went to Hearst. Okay. So so there's a continuing education requirement um, that I stopped doing when we joined Hearst. So okay. I'm still an actuary and I still have opinions, but I'm no longer qualified to give statements of actuarial <laughs> opinion. Um, so it's a uh, so I don't so I don't do that in my current role at all. So John, for any young people out there, or you know, people like getting out of college or trying to figure out what they want to do in life, or maybe people just you know, maybe thirty, forties, and trying to figure stuff out, maybe switching job. What, what advice would you have for them? Um, well, certainly, you know, if you have the aptitude, actually, is a great field. Um, but beyond that, it's. Uh, I'm not a very good career counselor in that regard. It it really has to do with with uh, what you love because it's what you shouldn't do is is get into a field that you think is supposed to be good uh, and then you find out um, that it's not really what I enjoy doing and and now you're stuck. So so it's got to be something you that you really like doing. So John, back to your what you do as a CEO. Um, What's what's something that's fun for you as a CEO? Something like you wish, like you just passed on to someone else, but you have to do it because you're the CEO. Yeah. Um, you know, what's most fun is just working with people uh, to uh, to accomplish our goals and and seeing that come to fruition. Um, uh, least fun is probably 
Well, certainly when you have personnel issues, it's never fun. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, sometimes there's there's bureaucratic things from our parent corporation that aren't fun. Um, they've gotten better at that, I'd say. Uh, and there's still and and if any of them are listening, there's still a ways to go. You kind of answered this before, but so suppose one wants to be a CEO. Is this like some kind of training course they can take, or like something online, or is this basically they got to learn to do on their own, right? And get get yeah, into your mentorship. You know, there are certainly business schools and executive courses uh, in business schools um, that can help you think about how to deal in particular situations, whether it's strategy or culture or both. Um, uh, but it's kind of something you grow into. I think in, you know, and, and me becoming a CEO, um, I didn't follow a normal path. Um, uh, but I first learned as I was leading my consulting firm in Denver, um, you know, I read a lot of business books during that time. I don't read as many now, but I read a lot of business books to help me figure out what worked, what didn't work, so forth, and thinking about it and applying it. Um, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me. And, uh, uh, the the uh, yeah I think it's you can supplement a lot but in the end it's it's a self journey. So the age old question: Are CEO are good leaders made or are they born? From your point of view, uh, made made yeah yeah. So um, you know, certainly for me, um, if you look at me as a kid, you have no idea that I'm heading for this position. Uh, and you know, at a young age, I was a math whiz. Uh, uh, extremely shy and and it's only through really loving business that I figured out how to do the people side um, so it's uh, and it's uh, yeah, it's probably the business that I love and then the people side I've learned to learn to love as well so it's um, no I didn't know how to do this at all so next question would you say people learn more from great leaders or actually learn more from bad leaders <laughs> um yeah, probably great leaders. Um, so, so great leaders give you lots of examples to follow. Bad leaders give you a handful of things definitely not to do. Um, so it's uh, 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 and and I think some people don't always recognize all the bad things bad leaders are doing. So they think there's some of them that they should be following. Uh, and so they probably it's probably a pretty mixed message from a bad leader. Yes. So for your for your staff. Are those like people who like get promoted from within the company? Do you hire from without the company? How does that usually work for y'all? We do both. Uh, uh, if at all possible, uh, we hire from from inside, and there are times where it's not possible. And in fact, um, we're right now going through some leadership changes on the executive team. Uh, so the head of sales left, um, and. Uh, we didn't have anyone with the depth of experience to be in that role, uh, but I know that going outside for that role is very risky. So we took someone who was a star salesperson who's been a director, sort of the level below the VP of sales for two years, uh, but sort of saw the cultural alignment uh, with where he's at and promoted him. And at the same time, because he was a little greener, we took the marketing area, which reported to sales, and pulled that out and, and made that separate. Now, two internal hires. And our director of HR just left, 
and we don't have anybody who who would fit that role inside the company, so we're hiring outside. So it's so to me, it's it's err on the side of promoting from within because we can keep our culture best that way, uh, but don't be afraid of hiring from without either. So for your company's mission and vision statement, it's really concise. Like maybe one or two sentences each. Yes. And a lot of companies have like these 10,000 page flowering documents, you know, blase, blase, and all this. And per- I think the more concise, the better. Mm-hmm. First, why is it so concise? And tell me how hard was it to make it so concise? Um, yeah, it's very hard to make it concise. Uh, I think we knew going in that we wanted to do that. Um, uh, and actually we had a, a group who worked on it, um, and uh, um, the uh, uh, the mission. I'll see. I'll test myself. See if I can repeat it. But but the, the MCG family provides patient centered guidance to the healthcare community through content technology and customer service, and and there are so many concepts built into that mission statement um, that we had to work at, and the the, the most interesting one. You know, so patient-centered is sort of our true north. We always write the guidelines for the patient, which is why both payers and providers trust us. Um, that we're doing it through content technology and customer service um, was the first time we really talked about being beyond content and how it's really a three-legged stool that comes there. But the interesting part was we then rolled this out at an all-staff meeting, um, and people were like, like, but where's the passion? Well, you know, We have a lot of passion for what we're doing. Um, and and at the meeting where we rolled it out and then some breakouts where people gave input and so forth, we changed it from MCG provides patient center to the MCG family provides patient center guidance. Um, and and that was our our code internally about the passion we have about delivering a mission. And so so it's something that you both want to uh, encapsulate as simply as you can. Um, uh, so that people are aligned with it, but you also want to, you know, so, so we added elements into it as well based upon the feedback. So it's so it's an interesting uh, uh, trade-off that you have to think about. John, how often do you all review this? Like once a year, once a quarter, every two years? How often do you like review and make sure you're still up to date and, and has the value and qualities that you want for your company? Uh, mission and vision are not that frequently. So um, I would put it more in the five to ten year range. Okay. Um, the uh, we we also have these cultural statements and behaviors we talk about, and we're we put those out three years ago, and we're talking about them now again. So so something you know. So we sort of test and and look at it. And part of the problem with those is they aren't concise enough. So um, so we're working uh, working from that point of view. So yeah. And so you talk about this some a little bit too, but as far as culture, now culture strategy for business, with you no know, people being remote, you know, all that kind of stuff. And how do you make sure the culture stays the same? Like how do you make sure that this is a culture versus because it seems like like you're gonna hire based on culture versus skill set sometimes. How do you make sure the culture matches what you want, mm-hmm. how it fits, you know, all that kind of all yeah. that? So there's a there's a great book by Patrick Lencioni called The Ideal Team Player. Uh, and that's probably our blueprint for hiring for culture. Uh, so that's, there's a lot of difference in culture. And, and uh, um, you know, our editors used to be centralized in San Diego. They're now spread throughout the country. And our software developers are here in Seattle. Um, 
And I used to say, you know, culture varies. So for the the editors, uh, a great team building event would be a trip to a museum. Um, for the developers, a great uh, team building event would be ride the ducks. All right. So there are different. You know, you 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 can't say everybody is the same, and we're not the same. We're saying everybody's dedicated to the same mission. People have the right attitudes about being on a team, uh, and then and then people are very different beyond that, and and that's good, and that's good for us for for us to be all over the place in terms of who we are and what we are. So, John, for your, your company, when you, when you hire someone, and for the people you hired since you've been there. Has there been consistent one characteristic that everyone has that you can say, okay, they have this characteristics, they'll, they'll probably be successful at this company? No. Okay. No, I don't. <laughs> if we had it that easy, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd be wonderful at hiring. But uh, we, still, we still make our mistakes and we still, uh, um, you know, so it's uh, um, uh, But we're also, um, uh, you know, we have, we have some people who are very good at ferreting out whether someone is a good cultural fit or not, and, uh, and I'll, I'll rely on them when, uh, when we're trying to figure that out. So I'm assuming that you do a lot of hiring in your company. So if someone wants to, wants to work for you, is, is how do they get your attention? Like, do this, like, apply for the job online? Does something that you do that, like, you know, bring attention to themselves, so to speak? Yeah, so I would say, say, uh, you know, watch our job postings and apply for the job. Uh, in the current... Uh, VP of uh, people that we're hiring for right now, people will send me LinkedIn notes or come in through other channels, and I'll say to them, apply on, <laughs> you know, go back and apply because um, there's no reason why I'd want to give a leg up just because someone happened to do that. I'd rather get a good, solid process where we're being fair about what we're doing. It makes sense. But of course, a lot of people tell you, know, do send a LinkedIn email, you know, do a direct message or Twitter, you know. No, no, it's uh, and and that probably works some of the time. It doesn't work as well with me, um, and I'm not sure how well it works with uh, um, other people at MCG. It might work, <laughs> it might work a little better. Um, and actually, one of our, especially on the clinical side, our great source of hiring is our customers. Mm-hmm. So our customers can be as dedicated, or sometimes more so, to our evidence-based content than we are, and they become great employees. Uh, because they both understand our customers uh, and they really appreciate what we're doing. And so so that's an important funnel to us as well. So this, this HR person you need to hire, is there any like background you're looking for? Like do you have to do you have to be in healthcare or do you have to be like HR director of a certain number like a certain size company? Yeah, so um, yeah, we're looking for I, I don't have a you know a precise rule about it has to be this or has to be that. But we are biased toward uh, technology companies uh, and possibly healthcare. We put, we put the job application out there, and people who said, "Oh, I've been director of HR at this hospital for all this time," doesn't really fit who we are. <laughs> um, you know, so that's a very just, just a little different. Yeah, it's a very different uh, uh, thing than uh, than than the multi. Uh, d- disciplinary roles that we have, and we have very, you know, we have people who do very different things within the company. So, if someone is like a VP of, of an HR, of a someone's a VP HR of a health tech company, and then someone else is a VP of HR for John Deere. The so John Deere to God might be, you know, right, right. The health tech company yeah. is, uh, you know, on 
Now, I could, we could be totally wrong, and the John Deere person could be perfect fit for the job, but we have to screen the resumes down to a workable number. <laughs> By the way, we got more than a thousand online yeah, applications I, I for could, that job. I could imagine. So it's a, um, and uh, you know, and people say, "Oh, we have you know labor shortage," but we weren't running into that problem there. We got lots and lots of applications. Yeah, that's the thing I got to tell a lot of people looking for a job. Like, you got to realize you're gonna probably be. I think the average job has 250 applicants, right? Yeah. So, yep. yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's, so it's you have hard. To something that stands out, and and often standing out is not things that you can do. Um, you know, so people will write these flowery introductions to their resumes, and I'll skip over them and look at what they've done. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so it's a, um, it's not a. Um, you know, so you have to stand out and you might not be able to affect what causes you to stand out. Yeah, like I tell people all the time, if you have a resume, you have 25 people look at you, 25 different opinions. Only opinion, like in your, your company case, it's like you and your hiring manager, right? That's the yep. only opinion that matters. Whatever people say doesn't really matter. Yep. And they really have no idea of what you want or don't want. Right, right. Unless they're networking with you, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, and if they run into me somewhere, I'd probably tell them what we're looking for, but they send me LinkedIn messages, they go apply online. <laughs> so, John, you talk about some, but can you talk in more detail about your company, MCG, like how it got started, what you're focused on now, and what do you see the, the vision for your company going yeah. forward? Yeah. So, how it got started. So, there was an actuary here in Seattle uh, in the late 80s who was consulting for HMOs um, and he figured out he could help them figure out the price they needed to charge to get employers to offer uh, the HMOs but he says but I can't help them figure out how to deliver at that price and so he started hiring clinical consultants to consult these companies to help help them figure it out um, and in a lucky break for us he way overhired into that position so they didn't get that much work um, and so a couple of them said, well, what these guys need is guidelines. And they started creating the guidelines in their spare time. So it was originally sort of a side project for consultants. So that's, and the first guideline was in a three ring binder in 1988. Um, and uh, uh, then in the late 90s, there was what's known in the industry as a managed care backlash. So as managed care was growing, um, lawyers started coming in and suing the HMOs and so forth. And when they did, they would name the Milliman Care Guidelines. Um, this isn't the right legal term, but an unindicted co-conspirator. You know, you're helping these guys deny care, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and at the time, our guidelines were evidence-based, but they weren't transparently evidence-based. Uh, and we hired a doctor out of, uh, um, it's a Berkeley? It was one of the, another school up there, uh, one of the one of the UCALs, and he came in and created um, an evidence summary, uh, footnotes. Uh, so he created the structure that proved that the guideline that we were writing was based upon the evidence, and that was just a major turning point for the company, uh, where before it was here's this actuarial firm telling you what to do. Why are they telling you what to do? Uh, and it turned it into the evidence says this is the right thing to do. And you, we can see where it's there. And, and we started taking off in the 2000s. Um, and uh, um, around that time, we also started into software. So first we published the books online. Um, and, but then more importantly, we created 
interactive software for the case manager where they could document the uh, uh, the cases that they're attending to uh, and uh, and track whether they're following the guidelines or not, which then allows them in turn to uh, to look at how they could improve care uh, by tracking to the guidelines more closely. Um, so we became a technology company, although not in a big way in the 2000s. And then over the 2010s and more recently, we're, we're switching into the technology as talking about earlier, where we're saying, let's automate the process of making that decision by being able to read the electronic medical record, um, uh, both through the codes that are in there and the language that's in there, uh, and simplify that process, both in terms of the communication between the payers and the providers, and just in terms of making that decision. And so, and so we have become uh, a content and technology company um, over the years. And now we're looking at data science and we're looking at you know, the things that, that allow us to, to build this even further. So John, I'll make this totally up, but I suppose you go on vacation for a week in April and you go on vacation again for a week in June. Are you still the CEO for your company or, or do people in the executive staff take turns like filling in for you to go on vacation or you're not the net, so to speak? Uh, I'm still the CEO. Okay. And so on vacation, my habit is, is I look at email once a day and respond to things and otherwise stay out, you know, so I'm mostly disconnected, but I feel a lot, so it's more my comfort. I feel a lot more comfortable if I, if I just see the email uh, and respond. So I, I don't say while I'm out, so-and-so is in charge. I just, uh, say I'll be out. Um, okay. and, uh, uh, and most, and because I don't make that many decisions, most things just keep operating. Nice. So John, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't asked you yet? Or anything else you want to talk about? No, I think that we've covered a lot of ground. Yes. So, so John, um, can you share your social media so people can reach out to you, whether on LinkedIn or for you and your companies? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, and you can search me at, you know, John Shreve, MCG Health. Um, and I'm I'm happy to link in with people. Um, uh, I'm also, and I publish content on there. I publish about the same thing on Twitter. Um, I think there I'm John Shreve underscore MCG, something like that. Um uh, and uh, and MCG Health has uh, accounts in both of those places as well that you can uh, link with and follow. And for listeners who have the links to social media on the show notes, you can find the show notes at www.cabinetshtalkblog.com. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and networks. So, John, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was fun. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day.